Hello and welcome to Asia in Depth. I'm Matt Schiavenza. Few countries in Asia have a recent history as turbulent as Myanmar. For decades, the nation long known as Burma suffered isolation and repression under the rule of a military junta. For nearly 20 years, the country's leading dissenter and advocate for democracy, Aung San Suu Kyi, was under some form of arrest. Then came a series of reforms, freedom for Ms. Suu Kyi, and the 2015 election of her party, the National League for Democracy. The world cheered what looked to be a rare good news story in the struggle against tyranny. Companies and civil society organizations returned to Myanmar. Money flowed in. The future looked bright. But as quickly as the country's fortunes rose, they seemed to fall even faster. The military responded to the violence in Rakhine State with a brutal and deadly crackdown of the Rohingya minority. Nearly one million have fled to neighboring Bangladesh, and the government has arrested journalists and rights advocates as well. In a few short years, Myanmar's image has plummeted once more. Its hopes for prosperity have been set back, and Aung San Suu Kyi has gone from a revered Nobel Peace Laureate to a leader accused of abetting crimes against humanity. Why did Myanmar's hopeful democratic transition go wrong? And what happens next? Tant Myint U has served as a special advisor to the government for Myanmar's peace process, as well as in numerous other capacities. He's the author of several books about the country. His latest, The Hidden History of Burma, provides a provocative look at Myanmar, its leaders, and the tough questions surrounding its transition. Tant recently appeared at Asia Society New York for a public conversation recorded live on stage with our Executive Vice President Tom Nagorski. I wanted to begin with a couple of quotes uh, taken from the early pages of your book. Uh, here's one. In the early 2010s, Burma was the toast of the world. As the generals appeared to be giving up power, everybody, at least in the West, began to believe that the country was in the midst of an astonishing transformation from the darkest of dictatorships to a peaceful and prosperous democracy. Burma was a morality tale that seemed to be nearing its rightful conclusion. Then the morality tale came crashing down. And Tan has one other, uh, I guess you could say it's more stark, it's a bit maybe lighter as well, but uh, a fact, quote, in 2016, Burma was on Fodor's guide, uh, Fodor guides, Fodor's guide list of the world's hottest destinations. By 2018, it was on Fodor's list of top 10 places to avoid, uh, which is a kind of flip remark from Fodor's, but it's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's deadly serious as well. So I want to start with an absurdly general question. It's so general that I asked Tant before whether it's okay to ask it. Um, how did that happen? I mean, that's uh, just taking that last thing. That's two short years, uh, and uh, if you were to pick on a couple of key things in brief that you think uh, are to blame or the causes for that, that rapid decline in, in what's happened there, what would you emphasize? In a way, that's an, it's an easy, uh, easy question. I mean, from 2016, uh, over the next couple of years, the new government under uh, Duan Sasuji, the NLD government, uh, was disappointing to some people in, in different ways. Some people were critical of, of the government's uh, handling of the economy. Some people were critical of the direction of the peace process. But at the same time, on those issues, there were many people who were relieved that Burma was finally coming out of decades of dictatorship or quasi-military government and were really happy to see the NLD in power. I think it was the Rohingya issue, the violence, uh, the, the, the 
the, 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 the expulsion and movement of hundreds of thousands of people across the international border, live and on, on television, that changed uh, the image of the country so rapidly over such a short period of time. Uh, but going back to that first quote that you mentioned, I think, I mean, I guess in a way what I've, I've tried to imply and, and, and uh, say in the, in the start of the book is that I think that framing of things was always a bit mistaken. You know, the idea that there had been this miraculous transition, that Burma in, in 2011, 2012 was on this inevitable path towards peace and prosperity and, and, and good government and democracy was always a flawed thing. And I think I started the book with that because I think it was important uh, when I wrote the book in 2017, 2018, uh, to have a more forensic kind of analysis of exactly where we were and, and, and what had happened over the previous 10 years. Mm -hmm. uh, well, when you say flawed assumptions, I'm reminded of uh, something you get at as a key theme in here, but uh, the phrase that I'm about to paraphrase because I can't quote it exactly actually came from um, someone you single out for praise in your book, and there are not that many people you single out for praise, was Ambassador Derek Mitchell, uh, who uh, served uh, after the transition or during the transition for the United States in, in, uh, in Burma. And um, he said that there were way too many people who looked at the country through the prism of the lady mm -hmm. and the junta, mm -hmm. as in Aung San Suu Kyi and the military regime. And it wasn't that simple. It wasn't that black and white. It, you know, there's a lot more nuance. I was a journalist, frankly, I'm totally guilty. Uh, and, and my colleagues, to the extent we even paid attention to the country, were always, you know. So what was wrong with that assumption? What was wrong with that prism that here was a, uh, seemed an unalloyed, iconic, wonderful pro-democracy figure? And uh, on the other side, the bad guys who were uh, uh, as repressive as, as almost any regimes in the world. Well, there's nothing wrong with it in the sense that it was you know, inaccurate back in the, in the 1990s. And in a way, it was understandable, uh, given the record of the military regime up to that point and, and, and the kinds of things that uh, Don San Suu Kyi and her colleagues were, were saying and, and, and trying to do. But I guess it was always just a very small part of the picture. And I think people never asked themselves back in the 1990s, I mean, you know, we knew in the 1990s that Burma wasn't just a country that was under military dictatorship. It was one of the poorest countries in the world. It was a country in which a very exploitative economic system was emerging. It was a country that was suffering from years of neglect in terms of the education system and the health, uh, health uh, care system. It was a country that was facing decades or had faced decades of internal armed conflict. And to think that one person or, or just a change uh, towards a democratic regime, however successful, could solve all those things, I think it was always flawed. I think people always knew that. I think it was just that, you know, it seemed in the 1990s and the 2000s that the military regime wasn't going to go away anytime soon, that focusing on one person, having an iconic figure, having a symbol uh, around which to kind of solidify a sense of opposition to the military regime seemed to make sense because no one really saw alternatives emerging at that time. Um, I want to get to history a little bit because it's, it's in the title of the book. Uh, it informs a lot of what you say in the book. And in a way, I think another uh, you know, point you make is that we or the people who got involved at these key mm. moments hadn't paid enough attention to the history. But before we do that, can we just get to a little bit more of your personal history? I mean, I went through, and folks have the bio here, but um, I, I, for those who don't know, uh, Tant's grandfather was Utant, the Secretary General uh, at the United Nations. Can you talk about, I think you were eight years old, when you made the f your first trip mm -hmm. to Burma, mm -hmm. and you were going to bring the body or mm -hmm. accompany the body of your grandfather home, mm -hmm. right? Talk yeah. a little bit about that. 
Well, I had never been to Burma at that point, but I was. I spoke Burmese. I lived in a Burmese home here. I lived with my grandparents and my parents. My grandfather had just died. He had retired from the UN a few years before, and we were living out in Harrison in, in, in Westchester. And my parents flew back with uh, his remains uh, for burial, and that's when there were demonstrations around his funeral. There were riots, and subsequently as well, uh, many people were, were were killed. Many people, hundreds of people, were arrested around that time. And I didn't. I don't remember. All, I mean, I didn't see all of that myself. I was only eight years old, almost nine years old, but it was my first experience in, in Burma. And so I think both my family history, the things that I heard people around my parents and people around my parents say at that time, my experience in, in Rangoon in 1974, I think made me feel from a very early age that this was uh, a not a good government and that mm -hmm. uh, something that needed to change. And so this idea of Burma being under a government that had really dragged the country down, that was oppressive in many ways, that was violent in many ways, under a dictator at the time, General Ne Win, was something that I remember from, not just from when I was eight, but from when I was much younger mm -hmm. as well. It's a really vivid part of the book. Um, so from your personal history to the nation's history, and uh, as I said, you take it uh, quite a ways back uh, to, I think it's 1824. Um, talk a little bit, uh, if you can, about what happened then and why you think, I mean, there's a good deal in your book about a history of nativism, a history of nationalism, uh, that I, I think your thesis would be, and you're not alone, that that informs some of the things we're seeing today. Why do we need to understand that to better understand well, what's happening? Well, because I think it's two, I mean, one I'm is- sorry, but can you explain what happened then for- uh, in, in, in 1824. In well, in 1824, you had the first Anglo-Burmese war. So the, the, the Burmese, there was a Burmese king, there was a Burmese kingdom, it controlled parts of what is now Burma today, but not all of it. It also controlled parts of what is now uh, Northeast India. Uh, and it went to war with the British East India Company. And after about 18 months of very intense and bloody fighting, it lost that war. And the British began to annex parts of what is today Burma. And after annexing parts of what is today Burma, including Arakan or what is today Rakhine State, uh, it had a second war in 1852 and then a third war in 1885. And out of those three different wars, it annexed parts of what had been the Burmese king's domains uh, to what became Assam in northeast India. Uh, but a lot of it became the new British Burma, which was in that way an amalgam of both places that were under the control of the old Burmese kings, but also places that had never been under the control of any Burmese king. So I think what's important to remember is that Burma is a modern creation. The Burmese state or the Burmese kingdom goes back a thousand years. I mean, there are different Burmese-speaking kingdoms for a thousand years. But the Burma with the borders that we have, including Arakan, including the Irrawaddy Valley, including the, the mountainous areas in which there remains armed conflict on the Chinese border, mm -hmm. these were all put together into a, uh, a British Burma which then became part of the British Indian Empire. Mm -hmm. And that birth of Burma under a British military occupation as a racial hierarchy with Europeans at the top, as part of British India, was the creation of this country uh, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Mm -hmm. And in terms of, um, well, the phrase you just used, racial hierarchy, the word I use, but use it in the book, nativism. Um, can you tie it a little bit to what you see going on or what we have seen going on today? Because, uh, again, that's a big part of your book. It's a big part of the story right now. Um, what's, uh, again, what, what, I mean, I, I had not known, I'm, I'm not a historian of your country, but uh, there's, you make the case that the seeds of some of the mm -hmm. attitudes towards the other mm -hmm. were sown a long time ago. Yeah. I mean, Burma was, was, 
born uh, as part of this uh, particularly exploitative and radical colonial regime. And it was a racial hierarchy, as I mentioned, with Europeans at the top, but it was also a country in which in the late 19th and early 20th century, millions and millions of people from elsewhere in the British Indian Empire came to settle in Burma to, to, to make a new life, to look for jobs, uh, to the point where in the 1920s, Rangoon rivaled New York as the biggest immigrant port in the world at a time when mm. the population of the country was about 13 million, up to 2 million people from, from India or the rest of India at that time came to Burma looking for work, mainly, mainly poor men. And it was okay for a while, there was economic growth and everything else, but by the 1920s you had, you had developed this sort of Burmese uh, identity that was set uh, against this Indian identity. Right. And that was a mix of, I think, people in Burma also feeling anxious, obviously under colonial rule, but seeing this migration of people uh, from outside, from, from, from elsewhere, but also married to a kind of colonial ethnography that began uh, in the late 19th century, but certainly by the 1920s, to see people as either indigenous to Burma or as alien to Burma. Mm -hmm. And this racial categorization of different peoples in Burma under very distinct categories, essential categories, as belonging to this particular group or that particular group, uh, and, and grouping these races in turn as being either of this country or alien to this country, mm -hmm. I think also settled into uh, the Burmese uh, imagining of themselves and, and, and who they, they were. And so with the rise of anti-colonialism and Burmese nationalism, this strong sort of ethnic component and this strong sense of the Burmese as being different and needing to <laughs> assert their difference uh, as a small country that was always at risk of being overwhelmed by big neighbors to the north, China, and to the west, India, I think is something quite central to the political DNA of, of, of the country. And that winds, works its way into, if I'm not mistaken, the, is it the 2009 Constitution? Uh, I may have my date off, but... Uh, 2008. 2008 Constitution, so working almost two centuries later, the same kind of language is... Yeah, I mean, so, so for a while it was fine. I mean, so you have this Burmese nationalist movement. Uh, you had World War II, which you know, many people forget. Burma was the, the, the country in Asia. Um, the giant battlefield. The I mean, battlefield yeah. destroyed by, by World War II. You had a nationalist elite then come to power as the British quit the country in 1947-48. And then you had, as well as, as, as a socialist sort of government, you had uh, not a nativist government in the 1950s, but a government that also saw this Burmese identity as very different. But then at that time, because Burma became independent as what was British Burma, there was then a need to try to unify other peoples that were seen as indigenous to the country, like the Shan or the Karen, right. with this Burman ethnic core. And that project has never been successful. And so from the, from the Burmese majority perspective, the project is to assimilate, integrate, People, others who are seen as indigenous while holding at arm's length people who are seen as alien to the country. But for those minority peoples like the Shan and Karen, this attempt by the Burmese majority to integrate them is seen as a big part of the problem over the last 70 or 80 years. Now, by the 1980s, under General Ne Win, with the 1982 citizenship law and a number of other things that were less legal but more uh, practice, um, this sort of nativist idea of the country belonging to only certain people, not belonging to others, grew up in isolation and became further and further entrenched, as I mentioned before, not just in law, but mainly in practice. Right. Okay. I'm going to shift gears a little bit now, and at the risk of doing exactly what uh, Ambassador Mitchell and you have warned against and uh, focusing too much on Aung San Suu Kyi, I do, uh, there are, I think, fundamental questions, I at least, and I suppose some members of our audience and, and 
around the world can't help but ask. Um, so I, I, I have only met her once in my life, and it was when I was a journalist, and it was in 1989, just before she was put under house arrest. It was about an hour in her villa, and things were pretty tense at the time. Uh, and uh, like a great many other people, uh, in just the course of a, a you know, uh, one interview, uh, she impressed enorm enormously with her charisma, her quiet charisma, her courage, and everything else, and, and, and then her bravery in the years to come. And um, a few decades later, uh, the next time I saw her, I didn't meet her, you were there as well, 2012, in mm -hmm. Oslo. Mm -hmm. She finally is able to get her, uh, Nobel, uh, her Peace Nobel Peace Prize, which she had won uh, in, in absentia. And there it's not just a euphoric moment for, for the country, supposedly, or presumably it's also an incredible moment for this woman. And I guess I'm getting to what happened to her a little bit, but you have in your book a, a remarkable uh, few passages, and I wonder if you could say more mm -hmm. about it, where I guess on the fringes of the Oslo meeting in 2012, um, you and Bono, there's all these celebrities who became involved with, with Burma because it was, you know, this cause celebre. And she was who she was. And you go off for a private meeting about Burma's future. Get, put us, get us in the room with, with you a little bit. What, what went on there was, I mean, what kind of a moment was that for you, given all the work you'd done in your country? <laughs> well, I mean, with Bono, it was, it was, it was, he was very interested, actually. He asked lots of different questions, and he was particularly interested in EITI, the Extractive Industries Tra uh, Transparency Initiative, and wanted Burma to sort of sign up for that. So I remember we had a discussion about that. But I think what's important to remember about that time is that it's not the case that, you know, we had this, this heroic, charismatic leader uh, iconic uh, resistance against the military dictatorship, and suddenly that military dictatorship just sort of crumbled away, right? I think it's important to remember that we, what we have right now is the 2008 constitution, which you mentioned, mm -hmm. which is not a democratic constitution. Mm -hmm. It's a hybrid constitution. But more importantly, it's a constitution that the army has been preparing since 1993, 1994. So this is not something that they gave way to under pressure or as a result of a grassroots movement or revolutionary movement, it's something that they have actually wanted to do for a very long time. And in the late 2000s, when General Than Shui was about to turn 80 and wanted to retire, he not dusted it off, but he finished off this process and basically against a lot of opposition, at least by activists and people outside and by the NLD, put this framework in place, which is what we have now. Mm -hmm. I think the reason we got to that point in 2012 was because two things happened. One is that the ex-generals that he put into place under that new constitutional setup went beyond the script and undertook a whole series of liberalizing moves, like the release of political prisoners and the freeing up of the internet and everything else, uh, that impressed a lot of people in 2011 and early 2012. And at exactly that moment, when Derek was also envoy, Derek Mitchell was envoy, uh, the Obama administration and Hillary Clinton, uh, looking for ways in which to engage the Burmese generals, found that the Burmese generals were doing just enough to justify that engagement and began to roll back sanctions. So, you know, we're living still in the world created in 2011 of actually much greater political freedom that we've had since 1962. And, you know, in many ways, the ending of the kind of isolation that we had from the West uh, from 1990 or so onwards. Um, but it was never the case that we were in the midst of this remarkable transition because of this momentum that had been generated mm -hmm. through a democracy movement. On the contrary, in the late 2000s, the democracy movement was almost on its last legs in the sense that right. people were locked up, hundreds were in prison, many were exiled. Um, and so I think we have to be clear, very clear on the dynamics of change. 
because that tells us a lot about where things might go and where they might not go in the future. I mean, people, right? I, I think in many parts of the world saw this as a Berlin Wall kind of moment, but and, and actually, you know, I think about Lech Wałęsa, Václav Havel, or uh, for that matter, Nelson Mandela. But the difference, I guess, is you're saying is there all the other pieces of the autocracy went away, whereas in Burma the military was still there. It was an entrenched military regime which, from a position of confidence and strength, took a step back. Mm -hmm. um, and that some people from within that regime, or the regime that was then set up, decided to go further than was expected. Uh, but by 2014, 2015, the inertia or the, the, the momentum from that liberalization had begun to wear out. Right. I don't think, or to put it another way, I don't think that the establishment, the military establishment in general, had expected to go so far so fast. And there were many other dynamics at play by 2014-15 as well. We're going to take a short break here to talk about some upcoming live webcasts on asiasociety.org. On January 16th, veteran U.S. diplomat Susan Thornton and political economy expert Vincent Weichong Wong offer analysis of Taiwan's presidential elections in a conversation with Tom Nagorski. That one kicks off at 8.30 a.m. New York time. And on January 22nd, our president and CEO, Josette Sheeran, will sit down with Farouk Kathwari, who came to America as an immigrant from Kashmir and became the chairman, president, and CEO of one of America's most iconic companies. That conversation will begin at 6.30 p.m. New York time. You won't want to miss it. As always, you can check out all of our upcoming live webcasts at asiasociety.org live. That's asiasociety.org L-I-V-E. And now let's get back to Tant Mientu and Tom Nagorski. I want to get to that horrible series of events in 2016. But before we do, you personally, in, in, in whether it's when you're meeting with Bono and Aung San Suu Kyi or anywhere in that time frame where things were really looking up, how did you feel given all the work you had done in, in uh, you know, a whole range of sectors and, and, and uh, um, you know, yeah. just as a Burmese citizen, how did you feel? Were you... Uh, were, were you euphoric? Were, were you? No, I think we were really. I think a lot of us were really frantic because I think it was very obvious from the inside to see how fragile this situation was and how little, how small the window was that we had. Because I think what people often didn't see from the outside were the internal fights from within the military, broader military stuff, meaning the government at the time, the ex-generals, uh, where. The reformist generals were actually, in many ways, always on a back foot. Um, and I think people, and, and we saw an increasing uh, dynamic of kind of intra-elite conflict as well between different ex-generals, between the parliament and the government. And everything looked, again, much more fragile from the inside than I think it did on the outside. So it was a question of you know, how far could we get things so that it would be hard for things to, to, to turn back or to snap back to mm -hmm. the situation before. And I think, you know, I think people assume that we had a number of years, it wasn't a decade or more, but a number of years before you had to put certain inevitable kind of process, not inevitable, but um, processes that couldn't go backwards into place. Right. Now, there's an unanswerable what-if question, I guess, uh, as to whether had those been the only challenges, could the situation today be better? But the fact of the matter is... Um, uh, 
I was going to say all hell broke loose. That's a little bit uh, uh, glib. But talk, if you can, uh, remind the audience what happened in terms of the initial attack and then the counterattack in October uh, 16, 16 in Rakhine State. Yeah, in October, I mean, if we just go backwards, if we just go back a few months, I think when Dawn Sanzuji came into office in the spring of 2016, she took a fairly courageous step of appointing Kofi Annan as the head of a commission right. to look to see what could be done to, to resolve the, the conflict in, in Rakhine between Muslims and, and, and Buddhists and more, and more generally. And she wouldn't have appointed someone like Kofi Annan, I think, if she had wanted to kind of dictate what was going to happen. Mm -hmm. So she did that and looking for a sustainable solution. Uh, just as Kofi Annan was appointed, though, uh, later that year began his work, uh, this group called ARSA, the Arakan Rohingya Solidarity Army, emerged, attacked uh, government uh, security forces. That led to a, a, a ferocious response. You had the first wave of uh, tens of thousands of refugees going to Bangladesh. Uh, the Rohingya issue, which had been on people's minds anyway because of the boat crisis a couple of years before, mm -hmm. where you saw people uh, trying to flee towards or, or move towards Thailand and Malaysia, uh, that became front and center of people's consciousness about Burma. Um, and over the next several months, over the late 2016 and, and 2017, uh, the, the tensions rose. I mean, on the one hand, you had the desperate plight of people who were in the country. Uh, you had this new insurgency or militant group that was mobilizing or trying to mobilize uh, villagers at the same time. You had different accounts of violence taking place over those months, over, over every week or every couple of weeks. Um, and in Rangoon, I think, and to some extent in Nebidor and certainly on the ground, you had this great paranoia. I think you had a, a tremendous fear on both sides in both these communities. But in Rangoon, you also had this paranoia because people had this um, uh, image of this group as being an Islamist group, an Islamic terrorist group. Uh, propagated, is it correct to say, by Facebook to, to some extent? I don't, think, I don't think Facebook as an institution propagated. No, no, no. <laughs> right. But as a, as a platform, because I think what happened was, you know, for people who don't know, in, you know, Burma went through a telecoms revolution beginning 2013. Mm -hmm. So we went from 2% mobile phone penetration to 98, 99% smartphone penetration over an incredibly short period of time, and Facebook was the number one platform. So at exactly the moment that people went online, so to speak, you had both the reports of the initial communal violence in Rakhine between Buddhists and Muslims in 2012. Uh, you had people saying whatever they wanted on, on Facebook about that, and there was a lot of hate speech as well on Facebook as a result. You had a strain of kind of, 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 of Buddhism that always saw, not Buddhism, but of, of Buddhist leadership that saw Islam as a threat to Buddhism, and that those ideas were propagated on Facebook as well. Uh, and then you had people seeing for the first time, you know, global Islamic terrorism, ISIS and others in Syria, in Iraq, live and on, on color, on, on Facebook videos. And all of these things, I think, merged in people's minds, this idea that there was this Islamic threat. And then here's this new militant group attacking, uh, attacking government forces in, in Arakan. I think that had an effect of creating this wave of paranoia that might have then been stoked up by different people as well. So when Arsa attacked again in, in August of 2017, just as Kofi Annan uh, submitted his report, um, the whole, I wouldn't say the whole country, the whole society, but I would say that the atmosphere was there for the army to respond in a no-holds-barred way mm -hmm. uh, and enjoy full support in, in, in doing so. So hindsight is always a tricky thing, but um, back to Aung San Suu Kyi for a moment. So there, as you say, there's this paranoia being stoked, however it's stoked uh, throughout the country. There are hundreds of thousands now people who are crossing into Bangladesh or stuck at the border or whatever. And by the way, 
bringing with them these just absolutely horrific stories, uh, in some cases pretty well documented, mm -hmm. of what has happened along the way. And what I guess I've never quite understood, and it is a hindsight question, is with all the, uh, the, the moral capital or currency that, that Ms. Suchi had in her country, around the world, um, because it's often said, well, you know, she couldn't come out and take a big stand because of public opinion in her country or because of the, the hold that the military had. Uh, could she not then? Could she not now? Uh, you know, I guess she's lost some of that moral currency or a lot of it. But could she not have, uh, you know, been brave in the way she had been as a dissident and said to her people, you know, Yes, we have an issue with this uh, with this group. Uh, yes, we're, we're not going to condone and sit still when there's all this violence, but we're also not going to condone all this horror that's happening to the Rohingya. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, I mean, it's a, it's a couple of different things. I mean, one is you had that general mood on social media, but I think you also have to ask yourself, you know, does that really matter? I mean, like I said, social does media was... Really matter? No, the, the sort of mood in social media, how reflective of is, is it of the rest of the country? Right. I remember also speaking to young Burmese people around that time in 2017 who also said, don't take this too seriously in the sense that people, ha you know, people write all kinds of things on Facebook, comment in all kinds of different ways. It doesn't necessarily re represent a depth of feeling. I guess what I'm saying is that I think um, people's attitudes could still be formed in different ways. Sure. Um, and I think what people said at that time, whether it's uh, Dong San Suji or other leaders or people outside, I think made a difference or could make a difference as well. Um, but it's not just about what people say and what people don't say as well. I mean, I think we have to take apart two very different things. One is the specific situation on the ground, which led to ARSA emerging, attacking the army and the army's response and the violence that happened in the refugee outflow. And you have to ask yourself, even if Facebook didn't exist, even if social media in Burma didn't exist, even if that kind of, you know, sort of general feelings in, in Rangoon about Islamic terrorism didn't exist, would the same thing has happened? And I think it's possible because all we have to look at is the record of 70 years of insurgency and counterinsurgency. Mm -hmm. This is not the first time that civilians have been attacked. This is not the first time that villages have been burned down. The scale of it is different. Right. And the intensity of the feeling because of social media may be slightly different. But again, I think we have to disaggregate. And I think we have to ask ourselves, you know, would what happened in Arakan or Rakhine in 2017 have happened? Um, no matter what. No matter what. And I think the atmosphere that was created by social media did make a difference, but I don't think it was decisive. I think what did also make a difference, uh, and it's hard to say in a way, is that because it was happening in a more democratic space, a competitive political space, mm -hmm. those people, and I'm not saying Don San Suji, but across the board, who may have wanted to take risky moves or do things that might have been politically um, uh, uh, unsavory or, or, or unpopular, uh, didn't feel they had the political capital to do that. And that's true of the last government as well, where after the, the communal violence in 2012, I think a dictatorship might have actually acted in a certain way, but in a more competitive political space, no one also wanted to take the responsibility for taking aggressive moves that might have been unpopular. I guess my question is, if Aung San Suu Kyi, given how revered she was, couldn't take that risk, who could? And again, she had, at least outside her country, but I think within as well, she had, 
she had built that uh, uh, that capital on the basis of being a an incredibly strong moral human being. Sure, but I think and, we have and, just to, just to, I mean, yeah. I think there's a few different things. I mean, one is you know what should political leaders be saying uh, in order that feelings of uh, racial or ethnic discrimination. Uh, prejudice towards others in society to the extent that a younger generation grows up with different feelings about others. I think that's one set of issues. Mm -hmm. That's very different from has, have specific soldiers or army officers been guilty of crimes against humanity and what kind of accountability is possible. Right. And is it even, a, is, is it even possible in, 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 in this context in Burma to imagine accountability or, or any government acting uh, uh, towards achieving accountability? That's different yet again for how do you create the conditions in which refugees might come home or IDPs might be able mm -hmm. to, to go back to their homes and access health and education. I mean, all of these are, are very different mm -hmm. political dynamics, or these involve very different political dynamics. What did she well. wind up doing, actually, I don't, I don't recall, with the recommendations of Kofi Annan's commission? Well, the government has said that they're moving forward on many of these recommendations, but they're moving forward in very partial ways. And I think that's reflective of a number of things. It might be reflective of political will, but it's also reflective of something which I think is really important to understand, which is that, you know, from the outside, because it was a military dictatorship, we assume that it's a very strong state structure that can kind of do whatever it wants. Right. And actually, it's an incredibly weak and fragile state yeah. structure where whatever is decided in APDAW actually almost never happens on the ground. So how one actually implements uh, the kinds of recommendations that are in the Kofi Annan report, I'm not saying it's impossible, and I'm not saying there aren't, there aren't political issues of political will, but I think we have to also realize that there are huge issues in terms of capacity in doing some of these things as well. Um, now, I don't want to get into all the detail, but Aung San Suu Kyi is not the only one who comes in for criticism in your book. You're pretty withering about the United Nations, about some of the United States, and am I right that basically your, your point is that so much attention was paid to the, the idea of fostering and promoting democracy? And on the other side of the ledger, uh, very, very little, relatively speaking, to development, to how this country that was incredibly poor, ethnic conflict all over the place. Um, I mean, is that your... That yeah, I mean, on the one hand, I think, I mean, democracy is great. And I think, in a way, it's about also what kind of democracy we're going to have um, and, and not to think about democracy simply in terms of having multi-party elections and that it, that's it. And in a way, I think if, if an emphasis had been placed on some other aspects of a more deliberative democracy uh, in terms of things like rule of law, in terms of things like uh, freedom of media and building up a strong independent media and independent judiciary, uh, I think those things are important as well. Mm -hmm. And it's about how do we sequence those things, right? Um, now, no one had the benefit of, of deciding those things because everyone, everything was under the military dictatorship until 2011. But still, I think we have to think about the sequencing of things in order to achieve a, a more sustainable uh, <coughs> democracy. Instead, what we have is that we have this incredibly um, uh, exploitative economic system. And this is what you know, I try to argue in my book is that, you know, People think of the history or the recent political history of Burma in terms of the, uh, the history of the democracy movement since 1988 and the uprising there. But equally important, I think, is the history of Burmese capitalism since 1989. Mm -hmm. In 1989, the Burmese way to socialism collapsed. The military junta which took over transitioned the country <coughs> to a free market system. But it, was, it transitioned to a free market system at exactly the same time that the border to China was open. 
at exactly the same time that the Communist Party insurgency collapsed on the Chinese border, at exactly the same time as that communist insurgency fractured into different militia groups with whom the army regime signed or agreed to ceasefires, mm -hmm. uh, when many of these militia then went into a whole slew of different industries, illegal and illicit, which then gave birth to a certain type of Burmese capitalism mm -hmm. that has mutated and evolved over a quarter century and that has mutated and evolved under Western sanctions and in isolation from global markets as well. And a central argument in my book is that it's that system and the dynamics from that economic system, whatever you want to call it, but it's a type of capitalism, which determines so much of day-to-day -day experiences in Burma and the dynamics that actually govern the country. And without thinking about that and where that should go, a simple transition at the top to a different kind of constitutional system is, I think, at best going to be partial, and at, be and at worst, it's going to have all kinds of unintended consequences. Right. Well, you've neatly brought us uh, close to the present, or maybe even to the present now, and um, I want to just, and, and we'll come to the audience in a moment, because there's, there are Burma watchers in this room who are way smarter than I am. Um, but it is worth noting, you've mentioned the country is, is considerably more free, um, that, that great stat you just mentioned, 2% uh, internet connectivity, now 98% economic growth, that, as I understand it, has, has hit rural areas as well. Um, but going forward, since so much of what we've been talking about is history and hindsight and all the rest, uh, you, you say uh, in the latter part of the book, quote, Burma needs a radical uh, agenda, a new product, project of the imagination. What's, what's in that? You, you, you've advised the government for some time. Uh, you're sitting now with, uh, uh, with the leadership. What, what's, and, by the way, with the outside world that, that still, to some extent, stands ready to help. Uh, what's needed? Well, you're, I mean, I think for me the most difficult thing in writing the book was to try to figure out whether I wanted to end on a positive or a negative <laughs> note, right? And we, by the way, here we love ending on positive <laughs> notes. Yeah, like, you know, because there's such huge positives and negatives in a way. Like you said, I mean, the country is far freer than for, for almost all people, yeah. and excluding uh, many people now in, in Rakhine State and people in the Northeast who are also displaced and affected by conflict. For many people, life is better than at any time in the past 40 uh, 50 years. That's true. Uh, there has been economic growth, and even for the middle 40-50% of the country, I think their incomes have gone up substantially over the past many years. At the same time, you know, you have, this is a country where there is intense armed conflict. There is, these, you know, not just the Rohingya violence, but other hundreds of thousands of other people who've been displaced over the past 10 years. Uh, Kachin people, uh, Arakanese Buddhists, Rakhine Buddhist people have been displaced by recent violence as well. Uh, you have hundreds of different militia, an exploding uh, methamphetamine industry worth billions of dollars. Um, and then you have these incredibly fragile state structures, a democracy transition that's half finished at, at best, mm -hmm. um, and, a, and a society that's really reeling from decades of, of poor education and, and, and poor health care, where 30% of kids are still stunted, more than 30% suffer from uh, malnutrition growing up. And it's incredible, it's the poorest country in ASEAN, which is trying to rejoin the world as a poor and weak country, which mm -hmm. is almost bound to, 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 to lead to all kinds of uh, different uh, outcomes. And then, you know, so for me, that's almost a 50-50 thing in terms of positives and negatives. You have a young generation that really, I think, wants to catch up with the rest of the world and, and do well. Um, but then you add on top of that climate change and the impact that climate change is inevitably going to have over the next 20, 30 years. And it is difficult to be, to be positive, I think. Mm. And I think in terms of thinking about the future, you know, I think constitutional reform issues are stuck. I think the peace process is stuck. 
I think no one has a good idea in terms of what to do in Rakhine, uh, both with the current insurgency and also with the refugees in, in, in Bangladesh. Um, but I think there are two doors that are open that need to be that need to be kind of pushed through. One is, I think, you know, before we even think about constitutional futures, we should have a radical program of anti-discrimination in the country, mm. where all people in Burma, regardless of race and religion, uh, should be, you know, uh, should not only be uh, seen as sort of belonging to the country and 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 and, and being treated equally, uh, but instances of, of discrimination being being actively. Um, um, uh, condemned and, and, and sought out and, and prosecuted if it's a violation of the law. But secondly, and, and perhaps even more importantly, I think to think through and reimagine what the political economy of the country should be. Uh, the last 25 years of, of economic growth have engendered a system which is far more unequal than anything that we've had since colonial times. Um, and it's engendered a system that has destroyed a lot of the natural environment in the country. And Burma, unlike many other poor countries, uh, has so many options. I mean, we can, we can have an economy that's based on tourism, on, on extraction, on manufacturing, on just exporting three or four products to China alone could probably drive a lot of the economy. But it's about people thinking through what kind of society do they want. Do they want a more equal society or not? Do they want something else? And I think that basic discussion of the kind of economy, the kind of political economy we have, is a discussion that's completely missing because there's been a complete divorce from the realm of politics which is completely focused on constitutional and legal issues, and the realm of economics, which has been completely relegated to technical experts and not to these broader issues about the kind of future society. Thank you for listening to Asia In Depth. You can check out our show page at asiasociety.org slash podcast or follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Asia Society. Next week, we're going to bring you a conversation about diversity and inclusion in Hollywood featuring Korean-American actor Daniel Day Kim and Hollywood producer and Asia Society Southern California senior advisor Janet Yang. Here's a sneak peek. One thing that I'm always wary of is being considered someone who's looking for charity. You know, like, mm. you know, the liberal snowflakes who, who are always crying about diversity. You know, to me, I'm sorry, I get a little angry about that. But uh, Go for it. I, will say, I will say that, you know, we've been waiting for these opportunities for a long time. You know, people like us have been in the business for decades, not years. And, and so, you know, give us a shot and we'll show you what we can do. I'm Matt Skiavenza. See you next time.